They carried Raistlin up the long flight of stairs to the boardwalk, made their way beneath the dripping tree branches to the Magere's small house. Once inside, Caramon built up the fire. Kit stripped off Raistlin's wet clothes with swift, unblushing efficiency. When Caramon ventured a mild, embarrassed protest, Kittyara laughed. What's the matter, baby brother? Afraid this will shock my delicate feminine sensibilities? Don't worry, she added with a grin and a wink. I've seen men naked before. His face extremely red. Caramon helped his sister lay Raistland down in his bed. He was shivering so that it seemed he might fall out. He spoke, but he made no sense and would occasionally cry out and stare at them with wide, fever-dilated eyes. Kit rummaged through the house, found every blanket, and piled them over him. She placed her hand on his neck to feel his pulse beat, pursed her lips in a thoughtful frown, and shook her head. Caramon stood by, watching anxiously. Is that crone still around? Kit asked abruptly. You know, the one who talked to trees and whistled like a bird and kept a wolf for a pet. Weird Megan? Yeah, she's still around. I guess. Caramon was doubtful. I don't go to that part of town much. Father doesn't... He paused, swallowed, and began over. Father didn't want us to go there. Father isn't around anymore. You're on your own now, Caramon, Kittyara returned with brutal frankness. Go to Weird Megan's and tell her you need an elixir of willow bark. And hurry up. We've got to bring down this fever. Elixir of willow bark, Caramon repeated to himself several times. He put on his cloak. Anything else? Not right now. Oh, and Caramon, Kittyara halted him as he stood in the open doorway. Don't tell anyone I'm back in town, will you? Sure, Kit, Caramon answered. Why not? I don't want to be bothered by a lot of tittle-tattlers snooping around and asking questions. Now, go along. Wait, do you have any money? Caramon shook his head. Kittyara reached into a leather purse she wore on her belt, fished out a couple of steel coins and tossed them to him. On your way back from the old crones... Stop by Odix and buy a jug of brandy. Is there anything in the house to eat? Caramon nodded. The neighbors brought lots of stuff. Ah, I forgot. The funeral meets. All right, go on. Remember what I said. Tell no one I'm here. Caramon departed, a little curious about his sister's injunction. After several moments of long and considered thought, he at last decided that Kittyara knew what she was doing. If word got out that she was in town, every gossip from here to the plains of dust would be snooping around. Raistlin needed rest and he needed quiet, not a stream of visitors. Yes, Kit knew what she was doing. She would help Raistlin. She would. Caramon generally took a positive view of things. He was not one to fret over what had happened in the past, or worry about what might come in the future. He was honest and trusting, and like many honest, trusting people, he believed that everyone else was honest and trustworthy. He put his faith in his sister. He hastened through the pouring rain to Weird Megan's, who lived in a tumble-down shack that sat on the ground beneath the Valenwood trees, not far from the disreputable bar known as the Trough. 
concentrating on his errand, muttering willow bark, willow bark to himself over and over, Caramon almost tripped over an ancient gray wolf lying across the threshold. The wolf growled. Caramon backed up precipitously. Nice doggy, Caramon said to the wolf. The wolf rose to its feet, the fur on its back bristling. Its lips parted in a snarl, showing extremely yellow but very sharp teeth. The rain beat down on Caramon. His cloak was wet through. He stood ankle-deep in mud. He could see a candlelight in the window and a figure moving around inside. He made another attempt to pass the wolf. There's a good dog, he said, and started to pat the wolf on the head. A snap of the yellow teeth nearly took off Caramon's hand. Abandoning the door, Caramon thought he might tap on the window pane. The wolf thought he wouldn't. The wolf was right. Caramon couldn't leave, not without the elixir. Shouting at the door wasn't very polite, but in these circumstances it was all the desperate Caramon had left to try. Weird, I mean, Caramon flushed, starting over. Mistress Megan! Mistress Megan! A face appeared in the window, the face of a middle-aged woman with gray hair pulled back tight. Her eyes were bright and clear. She didn't look crazy. She gazed intently at the sopping wet Caramon, then left the window. Caramon's heart sank into the mud, which seemed to be up around his knees now. Then he heard a grating sound, as of a bar being lifted. The door swung open. She spoke a word to the wolf, a word Caramon couldn't understand. The wolf rolled over, all four paws in the air, and the crone scratched its belly. Well, boy, she said, looking up, what do you want? The weather is a bit inclement for you to be throwing rocks at my house, isn't it? Caramon went red as a pickled beet. The rock-throwing incident had happened a long time ago. He had been a small boy at the time, and he had assumed she wouldn't recognize him. Well, what do you want, she repeated. Bark, he said in a low voice, ashamed, flustered, and embarrassed. Some sort of bark. I, I forget what. What's it for? Megan asked sharply. Uh, Kit. No, I don't mean that. It's my brother. He has a fever. Willow Bark Elixir. I'll fetch it. The crone eyed him. I'd ask you to come in out of the rain, but I'll wager you wouldn't. Caramon peered past her into the shack. A warm fire looked inviting, but then he saw the skull on the table. A human skull with various other bones lying about. He saw what looked like a rib cage attached to a spine. If it had not been too horrible to even imagine, Caramon might have thought the woman was attempting to build a person, starting from the bones and working outward. He took a step backward. No, ma'am, thank you, ma'am, but I'm quite comfortable where I am. The crone grinned and chuckled. She shut the door. The wolf curled up on the threshold, keeping one yellow eye on Caramon. He stood miserably in the rain, worried over his brother, hoping the crone wouldn't be long and wondering uneasily if he dared trust her. Perhaps she might need more bones for her collection.
Perhaps she'd gone to get an axe. The door opened with a suddenness that made Caramon jump. Megan held out a small glass vial. Here you go, boy. Tell your sister to have Raistlin swallow a large spoonful morning and night until the fever breaks. Understand? Yes, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. Caramon fumbled for the coins in his pocket. Realizing suddenly what she'd said, he stammered, It's not, um, for my sister. She's not here, exactly. She's away. I don't... Caramon shut his mouth. He was a hopeless liar. Megan chuckled again. Of course she is. I won't say anything to anyone, never fear. I hope your brother gets well. When he does, tell him to come visit me. I miss seeing him. My brother comes here? Caramon asked, astonished. All the time. Who do you think taught him his herb lore? Not that dundering idiot Theobald. He wouldn't know a dandelion from a crab apple if it bit him on the ass. You remember the dose, or do you want me to write it down? I, I remember, said Caramon. He held out a coin. Megan waved it away. I don't charge my friends. I was sorry to hear about your parents. Come visit me yourself sometime, Caramon Magere. I'd enjoy talking to you. I'll wager you're smarter than you think you are. Yes, ma'am, said Caramon politely, having no idea what she meant and no intention of ever ticking her up on the offer. He made an awkward bow, and holding the vial of willow bark elixir as tenderly as a mother holds her newborn child, he slogged through the mud to the staircase leading back up into the trees. His thoughts were extremely confused. Raistlin visiting that old crone, learning things from her. Maybe he'd touched that skull. Caramon grimaced. It was all extremely baffling. He was so flustered that he completely forgot he was supposed to stop at the inn for the brandy. He received a severe scolding from Kit when he reached home, and had to go back out in the rain after it. Chapter 5 Raistlin was very ill for several days. The fever would subside somewhat after a dose of the willow bark, but it would always go back up again, and each time it seemed to go higher. Kitiara made light of his twin's illness whenever Caramon asked, but he could tell she was worried. Sometimes in the night when she thought he was asleep, he'd hear Kit give a sharp sigh, see her drum her fingers on the arm of their mother's rocking chair, which Kit had dragged into the small room the twins shared. Kitiara was not a gentle nurse. She had no patience with weakness. She had determined that Raistlin would live. She was doing everything in her power to force him to get better, and she was irritated and even a little angry when he did not respond. At that point, she decided to take the fight personally. The expression on her face was so grim and hard and determined that Caramon wondered if even death might not be a little daunted to face her. Death must have been, because that grim presence backed down. On the morning of the fourth day of his twin's illness, Caramon woke after a troubled night. He found Kit slumped over the bed, her head resting on her arms, 
her eyes closed in slumber. Raistlin slept as well, not the heavy, dream-tortured sleep of his sickness, but a healing sleep, a restful sleep. Caramon reached out his hand to feel his brother's pulse, and in doing so brushed against Kitiara's shoulder. She bolted to her feet, caught hold of the collar of his shirt with one hand, twisted the cloth tight around his neck. In her other hand, a knife flashed in the morning sunlight. Kit, it's me, Caramon croaked, half strangled. Kit stared at him without recognition. Then her mouth parted in a crooked grin. She let loose of him, smoothed the wrinkles from his shirt. The knife disappeared rapidly, so rapidly that Caramon could not see where it had gone. You startled me, she said. No kidding, Caramon replied feelingly. His neck stung from where the fabric had cut into his flesh. He rubbed his neck, gazed warily at his sister. She was shorter than he was, lighter in build, but he would have been a dead man if he hadn't spoken up when he did. He could still feel her hand tightening the fabric around his throat, cutting off his breathing. An awkward silence fell between them. Caramon had seen something disquieting in his sister, something chilling. Not the attack itself. What he'd seen that bothered him was the fierce, eager joy in her eyes when she made the attack. I'm sorry, kid, she said at length. I didn't mean to scare you. She gave him a playful little slap on his cheek. But don't ever sneak up on me in my sleep like that, all right? Sure, Kit, Caramon said, still uneasy but willing to admit that the incident had been his fault. I'm sorry I woke you. I just wanted to see how Raistlin was doing. He's past the crisis, Kittyara said with a weary, triumphant smile. He's going to be fine. She gazed down on him proudly, as she might have gazed down on a vanquished foe. The fever broke last night and it stayed down. We should leave him now and let him sleep. She pushed the reluctant Caramon out the door. Come along. Listen to Big Sister. By way of repaying me for that fright you gave me, you can fix my breakfast. Fright, Caramon snorted. You weren't frightened. A soldier's always frightened, Kit corrected him. Sitting down at the table, she hungrily devoured an apple, still green, one of the season's first fruits. It's what you do with the fright that counts. Huh? Caramon looked up from his bread slicing. Fear can turn you inside out, Kit said, tearing the apple with strong white teeth. Or you can make fear work for you. Use it like another weapon. Fear's a funny thing. It can make you weak-kneed, make you pee your pants, make you whimper like a baby. Or fear can make you run faster, hit harder. Yeah? Really? Caramon put a slice of bread on the toasting fork, held it over the kitchen fire. I was in a fight once, Kit related, leaning back in her chair and propping her booted feet on another nearby chair. A bunch of goblins jumped us. One of my comrades, a guy we call Bart Blue Nose, cause his nose had a kind of strange bluish tint to it. Anyway, he was fighting a goblin and his sword snapped. Right in two. The goblin howled with delight, figuring he had his kill. 
Bart was furious. He had to have a weapon. The goblin was attacking him from six directions at once, and Bart was dancing around like a fiend from the abyss trying to keep clear. Bart takes it into his head that he needs a club, and he grabs the first thing he can lay his hands on, which was a tree. Not a branch, a whole goddamned tree. He dragged that tree right out of the ground. You could hear the roots pop and snap, and he bashed the goblin over the head, killed it on the spot. Come on, Caramon protested. I don't believe it. He pulled a tree out of the ground? It was a young tree, Kit said with a shrug, but he couldn't do it again. He tried it on another, about the same size after the fight was over, and he couldn't even make the tree's branches wiggle. That's what fear can do for you. I see, said Caramon, deeply thoughtful. You're burning the toast, Kit pointed out. Oh, yeah, sorry, I'll eat that piece. Caramon snatched the blackened toast from the fork, put another in its place. A question had been nagging at him for the last day or so. He had to think of some subtle way of asking, but he couldn't. Raistlin was good at subtleties. Caramon just blundered on ahead. He decided he may as well ask it and have done with it, especially since Kitiara appeared to be in a good mood. Why'd you come back, he asked, not looking at her. Carefully, he rotated the toast on the fork to brown the other side. Was it because of Mother? You were at her burial, weren't you? He heard Kit's boots hit the floor and glanced up nervously, thinking he'd offended her. She stood with her back turned, staring out the small window. The rain had stopped finally. The Valenwood leaves, just starting to turn color, were tipped with gold in the morning sun. I heard about Gilone's death, Kitiara said, from some woodsman I met in a tavern up north. I also heard about Rosamond's sickness. Her mouth twisted. She glanced sidelong at Caramon. To be honest, I came back because of you. You and Raistlin. But I'll get to that in a moment. I arrived here the night Rosamond died. I uh, was staying with friends. And yes, I went to the burial. Like it or not, she was my mother. I guess her death was pretty awful for you and Raist, huh? Caramon nodded silently. He didn't like to think about it. Morosely, he munched on the burnt toast. Do you want some eggs? I can fry them, he said. Yes, I'm starved. Put in some of Odic's potatoes, too, if you've got any left. Kit remained standing by the window. It's not that Rosamond meant anything to me. She didn't. Her voice hardened. But it would have been bad luck if I hadn't gone. What do you mean, bad luck? Oh, I know it's all superstitious nonsense, Kit said with a rueful grin. But she was my mother and she's dead. I should show respect. Otherwise... Well, Kit looked uncomfortable. I might be punished. Something bad might happen to me. That sounds like the widow Judith, Caramon said, cracking eggshells, making a clumsy and ineffectual attempt at extricating the egg from the shell. His scrambled eggs were noted for their crunchy texture. She talked about some god called Belzor punishing us. Is that what you mean? Belzor. What a crock! 
There are gods, Karaman, powerful gods, gods who will punish you if you do something they don't like. But they'll reward you, too, if you serve them. Are you serious? Karaman asked, staring at his sister. No offense, but I've never heard you talk like that before. Kittyara turned from the window. Walking over, her strides long and purposeful, she planted her hands on the table and looked into Karaman's face. Come with me, she said, not answering his question. There's a city up north called Sanction. Big things are happening there, Karaman, important things. I plan to be part of them, and you can too. I came back on purpose to get you. Karaman was tempted, traveling with Kidiara, seeing the vast world outside of Solace. No more back-breaking farm work, no more hoeing and plowing, no more forking hay until his arms ached. He'd use his arm for sword work, fighting goblins and ogres, spending his nights with his comrades around a fire, or snug in a tavern with a girl on his knee. What about Raistlin? he asked. Kit shook her head. I had hoped to find him stronger. Can he work magic yet? I... I don't think so, said Karaman. Odds are he won't ever be able to use it then. Why, the mages I've heard of are practicing their skills at the age of twelve. Still, I'm sure I could get a job for him. He's well-schooled, isn't he? There's a temple I know about. They're looking for scribes. Easy work and fat living. What do you say? We could leave as soon as Raistlin is well enough to travel. Karaman allowed himself one more glimpse of walking around this town called Sanction, armor clanking, swords rattling on his hip, the women admiring him. He put the vision away with a sigh. I can't, Kit. Raist would never leave that school of his. Not until he's ready to take some sort of test that they give in a big tower somewhere. Well, then let him stay, Kidiara said, irritated. You come along. She eyed Karaman, giving him almost the same look he'd imagined from the women in sanction. But not quite. Kit was sizing him up as a warrior. Self-conscious, he stood straighter. He was taller than the boys his age, taller than most men in solace. The heavy farm labor had built up his muscles. How old are you? Kit asked. Sixteen? You'd pass for eighteen, sure. I could teach you what you'd need to know on our way north. Raistlin will be fine here on his own. He's got the house. Your father left it to you, too, didn't he? Well, then, there's nothing stopping you. Karaman might be gullible. He might be thick-headed, as his brother often told him he was and slow of thought. But once he had made up his mind about something, he was as immovable as prayer's eye peak. I can't leave Raistlin, Kit. Kittyara frowned, angry, not accustomed to having her will thwarted. She folded her arms across her chest. She glared at Karaman. Her booted foot tapped irritably on the floor. Karaman, uncomfortable beneath her piercing gaze, ducked his head and whipped the eggs right out of the bowl. You could talk to Raistlin, Karaman said, his voice muffled by his shirt collar, into which he was speaking. Maybe I spoke out of turn. Maybe he'll want to go. I'll do that, Kittyara said, her tone sharp. 
she was pacing the length of the small room. Caramon said nothing more. He dumped what remained of the eggs into a skillet and placed it over the fire. He heard Kit's booted footfalls sound hollowly on the wood, winced at a particularly loud and angry stomp. When the eggs were cooked, the two sat down to breakfast in silence. Caramon risked a glance at his sister, saw her regarding him with an affable air, a charming smile. These eggs are really good, said Kit, spitting out small bits of shell. Did I ever tell you about the time the bandit tried to stab me in my sleep? What you did reminded me of the story. We had a hard fight that day, and I was dead tired. Well, this bandit... Caramon listened to this story and to many other exciting adventures during the day. He listened and enjoyed what he heard. Kit was an excellent storyteller. Every so often Caramon would go to the bedroom to check on Raistlin and find him slumbering peacefully. When Caramon returned, he would hear yet another tale of valor, daring, battles fought, victory and wealth won. He listened and laughed and gasped in all the right places. Caramon knew very well what his sister was trying to do. There could be only one answer. If Raistlin went, Caramon would go. If Raistlin stayed, so did Caramon. That evening Raistlin woke. He was weak, so weak that he couldn't lift his head from the pillow without help. But he was lucid and very much aware of his surroundings. He didn't appear all that surprised to see Kitiara. I had dreams about you, he said. Most men do, Kit returned with a grin and a wink. She sat down on the edge of the bed, and while Caramon fed his brother chicken broth, Kitiara made Raistlin the same proposition she'd made Caramon. She wasn't quite as glib, talking to those keen, blue, unblinking eyes that looked right through her and out the other side. Who is it you work for? Raistlin asked when Kit had finished. Kitiara shrugged. People, she said. And what temple is this where you would have me work? Dedicated to what god? It's not Belzor, that's for sure, Kitiara said with a laugh. When Caramon, spooning broth, tried to say something, Raistlin coldly shushed him. Thank you, sister, Raistlin said at last. But I am not ready. Ready? Kit couldn't figure out what he was talking about. What do you mean, ready? Ready for what? You can read, can't you? You can write, can't you? So you don't have any talent for magic. You gave it a good try. It's not important. There are other ways to gain power. I know. I've found them. That's enough, Caramon. Raistlin pushed away the spoon. Wearily, he lay back down on the pillows. I need to rest. Kit stood up. Hands on her hips, she glared at him. That addle-pated mother of ours had you wrapped in cotton for fear you'd break. It's time you got out, saw something of the world. I am not ready, Raistlin said again and closed his eyes. Kitiara left solace that night. I'm only making a short trip, she told Caramon, drawing on her leather gloves. To Qualanesti. Do you know anything about that place? she asked offhandedly. Its defenses, how many people live there, that sort of thing. 
I know elves live there, Caramon offered after a moment's profound thought. Everyone knows that, Kit scoffed. Putting on her cloak, she drew her hood over her head. When will you be back, Caramon asked. Kit shrugged. I can't say. Maybe a year, maybe a month, maybe never. It depends on how things go. You're not mad at me, are you, Kit? Caramon asked wistfully. I wouldn't want you to be mad. No, I'm not mad. Just disappointed. You'd have been a great warrior, Caramon. The people I know would have really made something of you. As for Raistlin, he's made a big mistake. He wants power, and I know where he could get it. If you both hang around here, you'll never be anything but a farmer. And he'll be like that fellow Waylon, a coin-puking, rabbit-pulling conjurer who's the joke of half of solace. It's such a waste. She gave Caramon a slap on the cheek that was meant to be friendly, but which left the red mark of her hand. Opening the door, Kit peered outside, looking in both directions. Caramon couldn't imagine what she was looking for. It was well past midnight. Most of Solace was in bed. Goodbye, Kit, he said. Goodbye, baby brother. He massaged his stinging cheek and watched her walk off through the moonlit branches of the Valenwood, a black shadow against silver. Chapter 6 Raistlin woke to the sound of rain pelting the roof. Thunder rumbled from sky to ground, the Valenwoods shuddered. The dawn was gray, tinged with pink lightning. Rain was falling on the newly dug graves, forming drowning pools along the Valenwood saplings planted at the head of each. He lay on his bed and watched the gray gradually lighten as the storm passed. All was quiet now, except for the incessant drip of water falling on sodden leaves. He lay without moving. Movement took an effort, and he was too tired. His grief had emptied him. If he moved, the dull aching pain of his loss would flood in on him, and though the emptiness was bad, it wasn't as bad as the pain. He could not feel the bedclothes under him. He could not feel the blanket that covered him. He had no weight or substance. Was this what it was like in that coffin, in that grave, to feel nothing ever again, to know nothing? Life, the world, the people in the world go on, and you know nothing, forever surrounded by a cold and empty, silent darkness? Pain burst the levee, surging in to fill the void. Pain and fear, hot, burning, welled up inside him. Tears stung his eyelids. He closed his eyes, squeezed them shut, and wept. Wept for himself and for his mother and father, for all those who were born of the darkness who lift their wondering eyes to the light, feel its warmth on their skin, and who must return again to darkness. He wept silently so as not to wake Caramon. He did this not so much out of consideration for his brother's weariness as for his own shame at his weakness. The tears ended, leaving him with a bad taste of salt and iron in his mouth, a clogged nose, and a tightness in his throat which came from muffling his sobs. The bedclothes were damp. His fever must have broken during the night. 
He had only the vaguest recollection of being sick, a recollection tinged with horror. In his fevered dreams he had become entwined with Rosamond. He was his mother, a shrunken corpse. People stood around the bed staring down at him. Antimides, Master Theobald, the widow Judith, Caramon, the dwarf and the kender, Kitiara. He begged and pleaded with them to give him food and water, but they said he was dead and he didn't need it. He was in constant terror that they would dump him in a coffin and lower him into the ground, into a grave that was Master Theobald's laboratory. Remembering the terrible dreams robbed them of some of their power. The horror lingered, but it was not overwhelming. The wool blanket covering him was rough and chafed his skin. Beneath it he was wearing nothing. He tossed the blanket aside. Weak and tottering from his illness, he stood up. The air was chill, and he shivered, groped hastily for his shirt, which had been flung over the back of a chair. Dragging the shirt on over his head, he thrust his arms into the sleeves, then stood in the middle of the small room and wondered bleakly, What now? There were two wooden beds in the room, each bed built into a wall. Raistlin crossed the room to look down on the slumbering form of his twin. Caramon was a late sleeper, a heavy sleeper. Usually he lay easily and comfortably on his back. His big body spread all akimbo, arms flung wide, one leg hanging off the bed, the other bent at the knee leaning against the wall. Raistlin, by contrast, slept in a tight huddled ball, his knees drawn up to his chin, his arms hugging his chest. But Caramon's sleep this day was as restless and uneasy as his twins. Fatigue kept him manacled to his bed. He was so exhausted that not even the most terrifying dreams could jolt his body from sleep. He rolled and tossed, his head jerked back and forth. His pillow lay on the floor along with the blankets. He had twisted the sheet so that it strangled around him like a winding cloth. He muttered and mumbled and panted, tugged at the collar of his nightshirt. His skin was clammy, his hair damp with sweat. He looked so ill that Raistlin, concerned, put his hand on his brother's forehead to feel if he were running a fever. Caramon's skin was cool. Whatever troubled him was of the mind, not the body. He shuddered at Raistlin's touch and begged, Don't make me go there, Raist! Don't make me go there! Raistlin brushed aside a lock of the curly, tousled hair that was falling into his brother's eyes and wondered if he should wake him. His brother must have been awake many long nights and he needed his rest, but this was more like torture than sleep. Raistlin put his hand on his twin's broad shoulder, shook it. Caramon, he called peremptorily. Caramon's eyes flared wide. He stared at Raistlin and cringed. Don't leave me! Don't! Don't leave me, please! He whimpered and flung himself about on the bed with such violence that he nearly fell on the floor. This was not dreaming. It was vaguely familiar to Raistlin, then suddenly frighteningly familiar. Rosamond. She had been much like this. Perhaps this wasn't sleep. Perhaps this was a trance, similar to the trances in which Rosamond had stumbled, never to find her way back out. 
Caramon had not previously evinced any signs that he had inherited his mother's fey talent. He was her son, however, and her blood, with all its strange fancies, ran in his veins. His body was weakened by nights of wakeful watching, tending his sick brother. His mind was upset by the tragic loss of his beloved father. Then he had been forced to stand by helplessly and watch his mother dwindle away. With the body's defenses lowered, the mind's defenses confused and overwhelmed, his soul was laid bare and vulnerable. It might well retreat into dark regions never known to exist, there to find refuge from the battering armies of life. What if I lose Caramon? I would be alone, alone without family or friend, for Raistlin could not count on Kitiara as family, nor did he want to. Her crudeness and her untamed animal nature disgusted him. That's what he told himself. In reality, he feared her. He foresaw that someday there would be a power struggle between them, and alone he was not certain that he was strong enough to withstand her. As for friends, on this point he could not delude himself. He had none. His friends were not his friends at all, they were Caramon's. Caramon was often irritating, often annoying. His slow thought processes frustrated his quicker-thinking twin, who was at times tempted to grab hold of Caramon and shake him on the faint hope that a sensible thought might accidentally tumble out. But now, faced with the possibility of losing his brother, Raistlin looked into the void where Caramon had been and realized how much he would miss him, and not just for companionship or to have someone strong on which to lean. Mentally speaking, Caramon was not a brilliant swordsman, but he made a good fencing partner. Besides, Caramon was the only person Raistlin had ever known who could come close to making him laugh. Shadow puppets on the wall, ridiculous rabbits. Caramon! Raistlin shook his brother again. Caramon only moaned and raised his hands, as if warding off some blow. No, Raist! I don't have it! I swear, I don't have it! Frightened, Raistlin wondered what to do. He left the bedroom, went in search of his sister with some idea of sending Kit out to fetch weird Megan. But Kittyara was gone. Her pack was gone. She must have left during the night. Raistland stood in the parlor of the silent house, the too-silent house. Kittyara had packed all Rosamond's clothes and possessions away in a wooden chest, stowed it under the bed. His mother's rocking chair remained, however— the only one of her possessions that Kit had not removed, mainly because there was a shortage of chairs in the house as it was. Rosamond's presence lingered like the fragrance of faded rose petals. The very emptiness, the lack of her, recalled his mother vividly to his mind. Too vividly. Rosamond sat in the chair, rocking. She rocked leisurely back and forth, her dress rustling. The toes of her small foot, encased in soft leather shoes, lightly touched the floor, then slid beneath her dress when the chair rocked backward. Her head and her gaze remained level, her lips smiling at Raistlin. He stared, willing with an aching heart for this to be true, even as a part of him knew it wasn't. Rosamond ceased rocking, rose from the chair with grace and ease. 
He was conscious of sweet fragrance as she passed near him, a fragrance of roses. In the next room, his brother gave a fearful yell, a horrible scream, as though he were being burned alive. The scent of roses in his nostrils, Raistlin searched the room, found what he sought. A dish of dried and withered rose petals had been placed on a table to sweeten the sickness-tainted air. He dipped his hand into the dish and carried the rose petals into the bedroom. Caramon clutched the sides of the bed, his hands white-knuckled. The bed shook beneath him. His eyes were wide open, staring at some horror visible only to himself. Raistlin had no need to refer to his primer for the wording of the spell. The words were etched into his brain with fire, and like a wildfire racing across parched grass, so the magic raced from his brain down his spine, burned through every nerve, inflamed him. He crushed the rose petals, strewed them over his brother's tormented form. Ast Tazarak, Sinuralin Krynawi! Karaman's eyelids fluttered. He gave a great sigh, shuddered. Then his eyes closed. He lay for a moment flattened on the bed, not breathing, and Raistlin knew a fear unlike any he'd ever previously experienced. He thought his twin was dead. Karaman, Raistlin whispered. Don't leave me, Karaman. Don't. His hands gently brushed the rose petals from Karaman's still face. Karaman drew a breath, long, deep, and easy. He let that breath go and then drew another, his chest rising and falling. His face smoothed. The dreams had not cut too deep, had not left their chiseled mark upon him. The lines of weariness, grief, and sorrow would soon fade away, ripples on the surface of his customary genial tranquility. Weak with relief, Raistlin sank down beside his brother's bed, rested his head in his hands. It was only then, his eyes closed, seeing nothing but the darkness, that Raistlin realized what he had done. Caramon was asleep. I cast the spell, Raistlin said inwardly. The magic worked for me. The fire of the spellcasting flickered and died out, leaving him weak and shaking so that he could not stand, yet Raistlin knew such joy as he had never known in his life. Thank you, Raistlin whispered, his fists clenched, his nails digging into his flesh. He saw again the eye, white, red, black, regarding him with satisfaction. I won't fail you, he repeated over and over. I won't fail. The eye blinked. A tiny pinprick of concern, of jealous doubt, jabbed him. Had Caramon fallen into a trance? Was it possible that he had likewise inherited the magic? Raistlin opened his eyes, stared long and hard at his slumbering brother. Caramon lay on his back, one arm flopped over the edge of the bed, the other across his forehead. His mouth was open. He gave a prodigious snore. He had never looked more foolish. I was mistaken, Raistlin said, and he pushed himself to his feet. It was a bad dream, nothing more. He smiled scornfully at himself. 
How could I have ever imagined that this great oaf would inherit the magic? Raistlin left the room on tiptoe, moving quietly so as not to disturb his brother, and shut the door to their room softly behind him. Entering the parlor, Raistlin sat down in his mother's rocking chair, and, rocking gently back and forth, he reveled fully in his triumph. Chapter 7 Caramon slept that day through and on into the night. The next day he woke, recalled nothing of his dreams, was amused and even skeptical to hear his twin describe them. Pooh, raised, Caramon said. You know I never dream. Raistlin did not argue. He himself was gaining strength rapidly, was strong enough to sit at the kitchen table that morning with his brother. The day was warm. A soft breeze carried sounds of women's voices calling and laughing. It was laundry day, and the women were hanging their wet clothes among the leaves to dry. The early autumn sunshine filtered through the changing leaves, casting shadows that flitted around the kitchen like birds. The twins ate breakfast in silence. There was much they had to talk about, much they needed to discuss and settle, but that could wait. Raistlin touched each moment that passed, held each moment cupped in his mind until it slipped away through his fingers, to be replaced by another. The past and all its sorrow was behind him. He would never turn around to look back. The future with its promise and its fears lay ahead of him, shone warm on his face like the sunshine, darkened his face like the shadows. At this moment he was suspended between past and future, floating free. Outside a bird whistled, another answered. Two young women let fall a wet sheet onto one of the town's guardsmen, who was walking his beat on the ground below. The sheet enveloped him, to judge by his muffled, good-natured cursing. The young women giggled and protested that it was an accident. They ran down the stairs to reclaim their linen and spent a few pleasant moments flirting with the handsome guard. Raistlin, said Caramon, speaking reluctantly as if he too were under the spell of the sun, the breeze, the laughter, and loath to break it. We have to decide what to do. Raistlin couldn't see his brother's face for the sunshine. He was sensible of Caramon's presence, sitting in the chair opposite. Strong and solid and reassuring. Raistlin remembered the fear he'd experienced when he had thought Caramon was dead. Affection for his brother welled up inside him, stung his eyelids. Raistlin drew back out of the sun, blinking rapidly to clear his vision. The moments had begun to slide by faster and faster, no longer his to touch. What are our options? Raistlin asked. Caramon shifted his bulk in his chair. Well, we turned down going with Kit. He let that hang a moment, silently asking if his twin might reconsider. Yes, Raistlin said, a note of finality. Caramon cleared his throat, went on. Lady Brightblade offered to take us in, give us a home. Lady Brightblade, said Raistlin with a snicker. She is the wife of a Salamnic knight, Caramon pointed out defensively. So she claims. Come on, Raist. 
Caramon was fond of Anna Brightblade, who had always been very kind to him. She showed me a book with their family coat of arms, and she acts like a noble lady raced. How would you know how a noble lady acts, my brother? Caramon thought this over. Well, she acts like what I imagine a noble lady would act like, like the noble ladies in those stories. He fell silent, left his sentence unfinished, except in the minds of both twins. Like those stories mother used to tell us. To speak of her aloud was to invoke her ghost, which remained inside the house. Guillaume, on the other hand, had departed. He had never been there much in the first place, and all he left behind was a vague, pleasant memory. Caramon missed his father, but already Raistlin was having to work to remember that Guillaume was gone. I do care to have Sturm Brightblade as a brother, Raistlin commented. Master, my honor is my life. He's so smug and arrogant, parading his virtue up and down the streets, making a show of righteousness. It's enough to make one puke. Ah, Sturm's not so bad, Caramon said. He's had a rough time of it. At least we know how our father died, he added somberly. Sturm doesn't even know if his father's dead or alive. If he's that worried, why doesn't he go back and find out the truth, Raistlin said impatiently. He's certainly old enough. He can't leave his mother. He promised his father the night they fled that he'd take care of his mother, and he's bound by that promise. When the mob attacked their castle— Castle, Raistlin snorted— they barely escaped with their lives. Sturm's father sent him and his mother out into the night with an escort of retainers. He told them to travel to Solace, where he would join them when he could. That was the last they heard of him. The knights must have done something to provoke the attack. People don't just suddenly take it into their heads to storm a well-fortified keep. Sturm says that there are strange people moving into the north, into Salamnia, Evil people who want only to foment trouble for the knights. Drive them out so they can move in and seize control. And who are these unknown evildoers? Raistlin asked caustically. He doesn't know, but he thinks they have something to do with the old gods, Caramon replied, shrugging. Indeed. Raistlin was suddenly thoughtful, recalling Kitiara's offer, her talk of powerful gods. He was also thinking back to his own experience with the gods, an experience he had wondered about since. Had it really happened? Or had it happened because he wanted it so much? Caramon had spilled some water on the table, and now he was damming it up with his knife and fork, trying to divert the course of the tiny river so that it wouldn't drip onto the floor. He was busy with this as he spoke and did not look at his brother. I said no. She wouldn't have let you go on with your schooling. What are you talking about? Raistlin asked sharply, looking up. Who wouldn't let me go on with my schooling? Lady Brightblade. She said that, did she? Yeah, Caramon answered. He added a spoon to the dam. It's nothing against you, Raist, he added, looking up to see his brother's thin face grow hard and cold. The Salamnic Knights think that magic users are outside the natural order of things. They never use wizards in battle, according to what Sturm says. Wizards lack discipline, and they're too independent. We like to think for ourselves, said Raistlin.
and not blindly obey some fool commander who may or may not have a brain in his head. Yet they say, he added, that Magius fought at the side of Huma, and that he was Huma's dearest friend. I know about Huma, Caramon said, glad to change the subject. Sturm told me stories about him and how long ago he fought the Queen of Darkness and banished all the dragons, but I never heard of this Magius. No doubt the knights would like to forget that part of the tale. Just as Huma was one of the greatest warriors of all time, so Magius was one of the greatest wizards. During a battle fought against the forces of Tachesis, Magius was separated from Huma's side. The wizard fought on alone, surrounded by the enemy, until wounded and exhausted, he could no longer summon the strength to cast his magic. That was in the days when wizards were not allowed to carry any weapon other than their magic. Magius was captured alive and dragged back to the Dark Queen's camp. They tortured him for three days and three nights, trying to force him to reveal the location of Huma's encampment so they could send assassins to kill the knight. Magius died, never revealing the truth. It was said that when Huma received the news of Magius's death and learned how he died, he grieved so for his friend that his men thought they might lose him as well. Huma ordered that from then on, wizards would be permitted to carry one small-bladed weapon to be used as a last defense if their magic failed them. This we do in the name of Magius to this day. That's a great story, Caramon said. So impressed, he let his river overflow. He went to fetch a cloth to wipe up the water. I'll have to tell that to Sturm. You do that, Raistlin said wryly. I'll be interested to hear what he has to say. He watched Caramon clean the floor, then said, We have chosen not to join forces with our sister. We have decided that we do not want to be taken under the wing of a noble Salamnic lady. What do you suggest we do? I say we live here, raised, Caramon answered steadily. He stood up from his mopping. Hands on his hips, he surveyed the house as if he were a potential buyer. The house is ours, free and clear. Father built it himself. He didn't leave any debts. We don't owe anybody anything. Your school's paid for. We don't have to worry about that. I earn enough working for Farmer Sedge to keep us in food and clothes. It will be lonely for you when I am gone in the winter, Raistlin observed. Caramon shrugged. I can always stay with the Sedges. I do sometimes anyway if the snow blocks the road. Or I can stay with Sturm or some of our other friends. Raistlin sat silent, brooding, frowning. What's the matter, Raist? Caramon asked uneasily. Don't you think it's a good plan? I think it's an excellent plan, my brother. I don't feel right about you supporting me, however. Caramon's worried expression eased. What does it matter? What's mine is yours, Raist, you know that. It does matter to me, Raistlin returned. Very much. I must do something to pay my share. Caramon gave the matter serious thought for about three minutes, but apparently that process hurt, for he began rubbing his head and said that he thought it must be about time for lunch. He left to go rummage in the larder, while Raistland considered what he might do to add to their upkeep. He was not strong enough for farm labor, 
nor did he have the time for any other job with his studies. His schooling now meant more than anything, was doubly important. Every spell he learned added to his knowledge and to his power. Power over others. He remembered Caramon, strong and muscular, falling into a deep slumber, lying comatose at the command of his weaker brother. Raistlin smiled. Returning with a loaf of bread and a crock of honey, Caramon placed an empty vial down in front of his brother. This belongs to that old crone, Weird Megan. It had some sort of tree juice in it. Kit gave it to you to bring your fever down. I should probably return that to her, he said reluctantly, adding in an awed tone. Do you know what, Raced? She's got a wolf that sleeps on her door stoop and a human head sitting right smack on her kitchen table. Weird Megan. An idea stirred in Raistlin's mind. He lifted the vial, opened it, sniffed. Elixir of willow bark. He could make that easily enough. Other herbs in his garden could be used for cures as well. He now had the power to cast minor magics. People would pay good steel if he could ease a colicky baby into sleep, bring down a man's fever, or cause an itchy rash to disappear. Raistlin fingered the vial. I'll return this myself. You don't need to come if you don't want to. I'm coming, Caramon said firmly. Where did she get that skull, huh? Just ask yourself that. I wouldn't want to walk in and see your head in her dining room. You and me raced. From now on we stick together. We're all each other's got. Not quite all, my dear brother, Raistlin said softly. His hand went to the small leather bag he wore at his waist, a bag containing his spell components. It held only dry rose petals now, but soon it would hold more, much more. Not quite all. Book Four Who wants or needs any gods at all? I certainly don't. No divine force controls my life, and that's the way I like it. I choose my own destiny. I am slave to no man. Why should I be a slave to a god and let some priest or cleric tell me how to live? Kitiara Uthmetar Chapter One Two years passed. Spring's gentle rains and summer's sunshine caused the Valenwood saplings on the gravesites to straighten, sending forth green shoots. Raistlin spent winters at the school. He added another elementary spell, a spell he could use to determine if an object might be magical, to his spellbook. Caramon spent the winters working in the stables, the summers working at Farmer Sedge's. Caramon wasn't home much during the winter. The house was lonely without his brother and gave him the creeps. When Raistlin returned, however, the two lived there almost contentedly. That spring brought the customary May Day Festival, one of Solace's largest celebrations. A huge fair was set up in a large area of cleared land on the town's southern borders. Free at last to travel now that the winter thaw had cleared the roads, merchants came from all parts of Ancelon eager to sell the wares they had spent all winter making. 
The taciturn, savage-looking plainsman traders were the first to arrive, coming from villages with outlandish, barbaric names such as Keita and Kekiri. Clad in animal skins decorated with uncouth ornaments said to honor their ancestors, whom they worshipped, the plainsmen held themselves aloof from the other inhabitants of the region, though they took their steel readily enough. Their clay pots were much prized, their hand-woven blankets were extraordinarily beautiful. Some of their other goods, such as the bead-decorated skulls of small animals, were coveted by the children, to the shock and dismay of their parents. Dwarves, well-dressed, wearing gold chains around their necks, traveled from their underground realm of Thorbardin, bringing with them the metalwork for which they were famous, displaying everything from pots and pans to axes, bracers, and daggers. These Thorbardin dwarves sparked the first incident of the fair season. The Thorbardin dwarves were in the inn of the last home, partaking of Odic's ale, when they began to make disparaging comments regarding that ale, which they maintained was far below their own high standards. A local hill dwarf took exception to these comments on Odic's behalf, added a few of his own relevant to the fact that a mountain dwarf wouldn't know a good glass of ale if it was poured over his head, which it subsequently was. Several elves from Qualinesti, who had brought with them some exquisite gold and silver jewelry, maintained that the dwarves were all a pack of brutes, worse than humans who were bad enough. A brawl ensued. The guards were summoned. The Solace residents took the side of the hill dwarf. The flustered Odic, not wanting to lose customers, was on both sides at the same time. He thought that perhaps the ale might not up to his usual high standards, was forced to admit that the Thorbardin gentleman might be right on that point. On the other hand, Flint Fireforge was an exceptional judge of ale, having tasted a great deal of it in his time, and Odic felt called upon to bow to his expertise. Eventually, it was determined that if the hill dwarf would apologize to the mountain dwarves, and the mountain dwarves would apologize to Odic, the entire incident would be forgotten. The leader of the Thorbarden dwarves, wiping blood from his nose, stated in surly tones, that the ale was drinkable. The hill dwarf, massaging a bruised jaw, mumbled that a mountain dwarf might indeed know something of ale, having spent enough nights on the barroom floor lying face first in it. The Thorbarden dwarf didn't like the sound of that, thought it might be another insult. At this juncture, Odic hastily offered a free round to everyone in the bar to celebrate their newfound friendship. No dwarf alive has ever turned down free ale. Both sides went back to their seats, each group convinced that their side had won. Odic gathered up the broken chairs, the barmaids picked up the broken crockery, the guards drank a glass in honor of the innkeeper, the elves looked down their long noses at the lot of them, and the incident ended. Raistlin and Caramon heard about the fight the next day as they shoved their way through the crowds milling along the booths and tents. I wish I'd been there. Caramon gave a gusty sigh and clenched his large fist. Raistlin said nothing. He hadn't been paying attention. He was studying the flow of the crowds, trying to determine where would be the most advantageous place to establish himself.
At length he settled on a spot located at the convergence of two aisles. A lace maker from Haven was across from him on one side, and a wine merchant from Pax Tharkis on the other. Placing a large wooden bowl in front of a nearby stump, Raistlin gave Caramon his instructions. Walk to the end of this row, turn around, and stroll back. You're a farmer's son in town for the day, remember. When you come to me, stop and stare and point and create a commotion. Once the crowd begins to form around me, move to the outside of the circle and catch people as they walk past. Urge them to take a look. Got that? You bet, said Caramon, grinning. He was enjoying himself immensely. And when I ask for a volunteer from the crowd, you know what you must do. Caramon nodded. Say I've never seen you before in my life, and that there is nothing at all inside that box. Don't overreact, Raistlin cautioned. No, no, I won't. You can count on me, Caramon promised. Raistlin had his doubts, but there was nothing more he could do to alleviate them. He had rehearsed Caramon the night before, and he could only hope that his twin would remember his lines. Caramon departed, heading for the end of the row as he'd been directed. He was almost immediately waylaid by a stout little man in a garish red waistcoat who drew Caramon toward a tent, promising that inside the tent Caramon could see the epitome of female beauty, a woman renowned from here to the Blood Sea who was going to perform the ritual mating dance of the northern Urgothians, a dance that was said to drive men into a frenzy. Caramon could witness this fabulous sight for only two steel pieces. Really? Caramon craned his neck, trying to sneak a peek through the tent flap. Caramon! His brother's voice snapped across the back of his neck. Caramon jumped guiltily and veered off, much to the chagrin of the stout little man, who cast Raistlin a baleful look before catching hold of another yokel and resuming his spiel. Raistlin positioned the wooden bowl so that it showed to best advantage, dropped a steel piece inside to prime the pump, then laid out his equipment at his feet. He had balls for juggling, coins that would appear inside people's ears, a remarkable length of rope that could be cut and made perfectly whole again in an instant, silken scarves that would flow wondrously from his mouth, and a brightly painted box from which would emerge a peeved and disheveled rabbit. He wore white robes which he had laboriously sewn himself out of an old bedsheet. The worn spots were covered with stars and moon faces, red and black. No true wizard would have been caught dead wearing such an outlandish getup, but the general public didn't know any better, and the bright colors attracted attention. The juggling balls in his hands, Raistlin mounted the stump and began to perform. The multicolored balls, Toys from his and Caramon's childhood spun in his deft fingers, flashed through the air. Immediately several children ran over to watch, dragging their parents with them. Caramon arrived to loudly exclaim over the wonders he was witnessing. More people came to watch and to marvel. Coins clinked in the wooden bowl. Raistlin began to enjoy himself. Although he was not performing real magic, he was casting a spell over these people. The enchantment was helped by the fact that they wanted to believe in him, 
were ready to believe in him. He liked the admiration of the children especially, perhaps because he remembered himself at that age, remembered his own awe and wonder, remembered where that awe and wonder had led. Wow! Would you look at that! cried a shrill voice from the crowd. Did you really swallow all those scarves? Doesn't it tickle when they come out? At first, Raistlin thought the voice belonged to a child. Then he noticed the kender. Dressed in bright green pants, a yellow shirt, and an orange vest, with an extremely long topknot of hair, the kender surged forward to the front of the crowd, which parted nervously at his coming, everyone clutching his purse. The kender stood in front of Raistlin, regarding him with open-mouthed admiration. Raistlin cast an alarmed glance at Caramon, who hurried over to stand protectively beside the wooden bowl that held their money. The Kender seemed familiar to Raistlin, but then Kender are so appallingly different from normal people that they all look alike to the untrained eye. Raistlin thought it wise to distract the Kender from the wooden bowl. He did this by first extracting one of his juggling balls from the Kender's pouch, then causing a shower of coins to fall from the Kender's nose, much to the diminutive spectator's wild delight and mystification. The audience, quite a large audience now, applauded. Coins clinked into the bowl. Raistlin was taking a bow when, For shame! a voice cried. Raistlin rose from his bow to look directly into the face, the blotchy, vein-popping, infuriated face of his schoolmaster. For shame, Master Theobald cried again. He leveled a quivering, accusing finger at his pupil. Making an exhibition of yourself before the masses! Conscious of the watching crowd, Raistlin tried to maintain his composure, though hot blood rushed to his face. I know that you disapprove, Master, but I must earn my living the best way I know how. Excuse me, Master, sir, but you're blocking my view, said the Kender politely, and he reached up to tug at the sleeve of the man's white robe to gain his attention. The Kender was short, and Master Theobald was shouting and waving his arms, which undoubtedly explains how the Kender missed the sleeve and ended up tugging on the pouch of spell components hanging from the master's belt. I've heard how you've been earning your living, Master Theobald countered, consorting with that witch woman, using weeds to fool the gullible into thinking they've been healed. I came here on purpose to see for myself, because I could not believe the stories were true. Do you really know a witch? asked the Kender eagerly looking up from the pouch of spell components. "'Would you have me starve, Master?' Raistlin demanded. "'You should beg in the streets before you prostitute your art and make a mockery of me and my school,' Master Theobald cried. He reached out his hand to drag Raistlin down from the stump. "'Touch me, sir,' Raistlin spoke with quiet menace. "'And you will regret it.' Theobald glowered. Do you dare to threaten? Hey, little fella, Caramon cried, lumbering in between the two. Toss that pouch over here. Goblin ball, shouted the Kender. You're the goblin, he informed Master Theobald, and sent the pouch whizzing over the mage's head. 
This yours, huh, wizard? Caramon teased, capering and waving the pouch in front of Theobald's face. Is it? Master Theobald recognized the pouch, clapped his hand to his belt where the pouch should be hanging. Blue veins popped out of his forehead. His face flushed a deeper red. Give that to me, you hooligan, he cried. Down the middle, yelled the kender, making an end sweep around the master. Caramon tossed the pouch. The kender caught it, amidst laughter and cheers from the crowd, who were finding the game even more entertaining than the magic. Raistlin stood on the stump, coolly watching the proceedings, a half-smile on his lips. The kender reached up to throw a long pass back to Caramon, when suddenly the pouch was plucked out of the kender's hand. What the? The kender looked up in astonishment. I'll take that, said a stern voice. A tall man in his early twenties, with eyes as blue as salamnic skies, long hair worn in an old-fashioned single braid down his back, took hold of the pouch. His face was serious and stern, for he was raised to believe that life was serious and stern, bound with rules whose rigid iron bars could never bend or dislodge. Sturm Brightblade closed the pouch's drawstrings, dusted off the pouch, and handed it with a formal bow to the furious mage. Thank you, said Master Theobald stiffly. Snatching back the pouch, he thrust it safely up his long flowing sleeve. He cast a baleful glance at the kender, and then, turning, he coldly regarded Raistlin. You will either leave this place, or you will leave my school. Which is it to be, young man? Raistlin glanced at the wooden bowl. They had quite enough money for the time being, anyway. And in the future, what the master did not know would not hurt him. Raistlin would simply have to be circumspect. With an appearance of humility, Raistlin stepped down from the stump. I am sorry, master, said Raistlin contritely. It won't happen again. I should hope not, said master Theobald stiffly. He departed in a state of high dudgeon that would only increase upon his return home to find that most of his spell components, to say nothing of his steel pieces, had disappeared, and not by magic. The crowd began to drift away, most of them quite satisfied, having seen a show well worth a steel coin or two. Soon the only people remaining around the stump were Sturm, Caramon, Raistlin, and the Kender. Ah, Sturm, Caramon sighed. You spoiled the fun. Fun? Sturm frowned. That was Raistlin's schoolmaster you were tormenting, wasn't it? Yes, but— Excuse me, said the Kender— shoving his way forward to talk to Raistlin. Could you pull the rabbit out of the box again? 